You're listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, August 1st, 2019. This morning we want to talk about Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. The beginning of of the book of Acts is all about Jesus instructing his apostles about the kingdom of God. The book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul in Rome proclaiming the kingdom of God. From beginning to end, the book is about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God encompasses heaven and earth, the spiritual and physical dimensions of reality. Both were created by God. Both are where he desires to rule and reign. It's easy sometimes to forget that the spiritual dimension, which we call heaven, was a created dimension as well. But scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it appears that sin began in the spiritual dimension. For example, in Isaiah 14, 12, we have this. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who are weakened, you who weakened the nations. So here, Lucifer, who is identified in the book of Revelation as the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, Lucifer apparently was used um, of God to be the purveyor of evil, not that God wanted, was causing evil. This gets into the will of God and to the aspects of the will of God that are very difficult for us to understand. But some way or another, God is glorified in and through evil, even though he didn't cause it, even though it doesn't fit his preceptive will, that is his perfect will. Adam and Eve were influenced to rebel against God by the serpent, by Satan in the Garden of Eden. This was the fall of man, the setup for God to display his mercy through the redemptive story of history called the meta narrative. The protagonist of the meta narrative was the incarnated Son of God, Jesus, whose destiny was the cross and whose legacy was the the build his ecclesia. The legacy of anyone is the work that they'll perform after their passing. So after the ascension of Jesus, the work of building his ecclesia was given to his apostles. Jesus fulfilled the legacy to build the ecclesia through his followers. The kingdom of God encompasses his work as part of the meta narrative. Luke in the book of Acts recorded the commencement and initial phase of the building of the ecclesia. Now, if we view the kingdom of God as the rule of the creator over his creation and mankind as the ruling agents of God, we readily recognize that the kingdom of God is about fulfilling the creation mandate. You see, since the fall of man, mankind has been impaired in his ability to obey the creation mandate. That is to be God's ruling agents on this planet. It's through the incarnation of Christ that mankind is now empowered And with this empowerment, mankind can now fulfill for the first time in history in the church age. We can fulfill the creation mandate. In the Old Testament, the great story or one of the great stories of the Old Testament is that man couldn't fulfill the creation mandate because of man's fallen state. And man could do nothing to remedy his fallen state. Mankind needed to be empowered. Mankind needed divine potency to be able to do what God put mankind here to do in the first place. Now, the end objective of God through Jesus is restore his uncontested rule and reign over his creation. That is the kingdom of God. 
This will be fully accomplished when Jesus returns at his second advent. In the meantime, and we're living in this meantime between the two advents of Christ, Jesus will rule progressively through his growing ecclesia. This is what he's building. He's building this ecclesia first with the apostles and then with those who the apostles discipled. And now since then, it's been generation after generation of discipleship that's facilitated the growth of the ecclesia. In this section of the book of Acts that we're going to talk about today, Luke recorded part of Jesus's instructions to his apostles, who already apparently knew their assignment and were probably eager to start, as we most of us would be. But they didn't seem to understand, really understand their need for divine potency. And they really didn't seem to understand metaphysically what was really going on. They still thought and they still functioned much like people with a naturalistic worldview that is seeing things only from a physical perspective. They didn't really have much metaphysical awareness. And this will show up repeatedly in the book of Acts. In fact, you could argue that the book of Acts is like the day dawning, where when you start at the beginning of the book, there's almost no metaphysical awareness on the part of any of the followers of Jesus. But by the end, the Apostle Paul reveals great metaphysical awareness. So the book is unfolding how God has trained these, his people, his early followers, the early church, how to think from his perspective and then how to live accordingly. So let me read first. Uh, I'm going to read uh, <clears throat> the whole text to you real quickly, and then we'll go through and break it down. Luke writes, while I was with them, this is Jesus, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you've heard, heard me speak about. For John baptized with you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So this is Jesus speaking to his followers, primarily his, 12, his 11 apostles. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said, to them, it is not for you to know times, which is large portions of time or large trends. You can think of uh, mega trends or period specific events that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And that word witnesses is the word martyr. We get the, the English word martyr, which means someone who's willing to die for a cause. That's the idea of a witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took them out of his sight. When he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which apparently is where Jesus ascended, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the upper room and where they were staying, Peter, James, John, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all were continually united in prayer, 
along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Jesus commanded his apostles to leave Jerusalem, to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This instruction was given in the context of, of Jesus' many appearances during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. The Father's promise was to put a new spirit in the ecclesia. You see this in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. That would empower the people of God as never before, Jeremiah 31, 33. Israel had been told that if they obeyed God's law, they would be his ecclesia, Exodus 19, but they failed. That's one of the big lessons of the Old Testament. Man in and of himself lacked the potency to be able to meet God's standard of righteousness. But now with divine empowerment, man can. Now it's not that man is perfect, but man is enters into a process of progressively growing and maturing in Christ and that gives him the grace to begin to overcome total depravity and begin to fulfill the creation mandate. The rule and reign of Christ through the kingdom of God comes then through the ecclesia, the New Testament ecclesia, as never before in history. The fulfillment of the Father's promise was the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to transform human hearts. John the Baptist baptized in a water as an act of repentance. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a baptism with fire, Matthew 3.11, that is empowerment. It is a baptism that transforms human hearts to give freedom asymptotically from the debilitating power of sin inherent in human nature. Because of the condition of total depravity, the ecclesia could never be built based on human potency. It required divine potency in the hearts of man. Verse 6 records a disconnect in communication between the kingdom of God, which is not surprising. Jesus was talking out of, a, out of great metaphysical awareness. He always saw things from God's perspective. But the apostles were, were not. They did not think metaphysically. They did not see from God's perspective. They saw as humans. They saw even in many ways like unregenerate humans, although they knew the Lord which is a picture for all of us. When we come to know the Lord, we're not immediately mature in our ability to see from God's perspective. And so we've got to learn how to do that. The apostles' question was about the immediate, literal restoration of the rule of God through Israel, a reversion to the failed Old Testament paradigm. That's what we all tend to do. You saw this when the people of God were, were uh, actually in Exodus, they uh, they were redeemed by God from captivity to Pharaoh. And what happened there is they got into difficulties in the process of being redeemed, and their, their natural response was reversion to a paradigm that they were comfortable with, back into slavery. Well, we all do that, and certainly apostles did the same thing here. They thought, well, we don't really understand what's going on. We don't get what's happened. Jesus died, he's resurrected, and now he says he's leaving, he's going to build his church. What does all this mean? We don't know what all this means. And so they're asking him, are you just going to go back and restore the kingdom to Israel? We understand that. We get that. So they really did not understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus was very patient with them because he knew there was a process they had to go through to understand what was really going on. And the book of Acts is a transition book 
in which God is revealing to his early followers how he's really working, what the meta narrative really is, what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be live under that empowerment. So all of this is being revealed to them and it's been recorded by the book of Acts so we understand something of what happened from God's perspective. This helps us learn to think from meta with metaphysical awareness so that we can do what we're called to do. The Old Testament experiment based on the conditional covenant failed because of the depraved nature of mankind. The new covenant did not depend on the potency of mankind, but the potency of God. The father fulfilled his promise by sending the Holy Spirit to empower mankind. This was the basis for building the Ecclesia, the legacy of Jesus. In chapter two, it will be clear that the recipients of this divine potency will be the first Jews. And then in chapter seven, it'll go to Samaria. And finally, in chapter 10, it will go to Gentiles. The blessing of divine empowerment for the ecclesia and to build the ecclesia will be a blessing to all mankind of all ethnicities. And it is based on the Abrahamic promises of Genesis chapter 12, verse three. Verse eight is a commissioning statement, a directive predicated on divine empowerment. The apostles assignment was to be Jesus Martus. That's the Greek word, Martus. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It means martyr. It means a legal witness, a legal historical witness and an ethical witness. It has all those implications. And the idea was being a willing to die, sacrifice your life to be able to stand true to Christ. The assigned time for this empowerment, the location was in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. In other words, God had timing to enter into this engagement with us. He had locations, which was ultimately the world, and it started with locally in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, historically the seat of the presence of God in the Old Testament, and was spread out from there. Ethnicity here is inclusivity. We have the inclusivity of all ethnic people, and that's expressed here through, through geographical in, inclusivity. In Matthew chapter 28, the stress is on ethnic inclusivity. Here, the stress is on geographical inclusivity, and arguably they're, they're intertwined, one and the same. If you are ethnically inclusive, you're geographically inclusive and vice versa. One of the questions of this assignment was to whom it was given. Was the assignment limited to the apostles, the original apostles, the 11, and possibly the apostle Paul, or was it a long-term assignment given to the growing ecclesia? Now that's a big question. The original apostles were eyewitnesses of, of Jesus, but as they built the ecclesia, the members of the ecclesia would not necessarily be eyewitnesses. In fact, many of them would not be and in time, virtually all of them, all of them would not be. Nevertheless, the question was, was this commission something that was limited to the apostles or was it a general mandate for the ecclesia? This is difficult to know for certain. The early ecclesia believed it was limited, but the pedestrian view today is that it was unlimited. Now that's a very important distinction to realize. And I'll talk about that a little further when I talk in the theological section. Now let's look at verses nine through 11. The apostles here were gazing into heaven. I'll read this, these three verses to you. After he had said this, he was taken up 
as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing. That means they were their eyes were fixed on him as he went up. And suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Now remember heaven is, is a created existence. There are, seems to be levels of heaven, uh, at least three levels of heaven we see in scripture. And of course, God is a spirit being that transcends all reality, physical and spiritual. And so it looks like this heaven is referring to Jesus transi transitioning from this created dimension into the eternal dimension with the Father. At least that's what it appears to be. We can't be totally sure of that. But there's an interesting observation made here. And that is, this is a prophetic act that Jesus be ascending because it's prophetic of the, his return. He will come in like manner. He will return. So part of the training of the early apostles was to give them here some metaphysical awareness of what's going to happen. We're not going to go back to a time like it was in the Old Testament days where Israel was going to be the ecclesia. That was an experiment that was done to show the people of the world that it didn't matter what, what happened, no matter what the rules were, mankind could never obey God well enough to be accepted. So God stepped in and provided a way for man to be accepted and now is empowering mankind through the grace of Christ to be able to live as the ecclesia. So the two angels there, presumably they were angels, who appeared in white clothes, similar to what uh, happened when Jesus was resurrected, they're there to help the apostles see reality correctly, understand reality, draw the right conclusions, and make the right choices. That's always what God is after, is helping us to see things from his perspective. If we can't see them from his perspective, we will never understand what's really going on. We'll never draw the right conclusions and we'll never make the right choices. This is why we so desperately need to learn how to see metaphysically from God's perspective. Now verses uh, 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is apparently where Jesus ascended, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. After the ascension of Jesus, his followers returned from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, about a 3,000 foot walk. That was considered a Sabbath day's journey. The Mount of Olives was a burial ground. <clears throat> Though they were in shock and lacked metaphysical awareness, they were clear on one point. The apostles returned to Jerusalem to wait for the promise from the Father. Not promises, but promise. This is a specific reference to the coming indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's going to happen in chapter 2. Divine empowerment was necessary for them to fulfill their assignment. That is, the legacy of Jesus of building his church would be fulfilled through his followers who were divinely empowered to do it. Now, there's a reference here to the women. 
probably referring to the faithful women who served him throughout his incarnation and afterwards. During Jesus' walk or his work as an itinerant teacher, the women provided for him out of their own resources. We see that in the book of Luke, verse chapter 8, verse 3. They were with him at his crucifixion. They were the first to discover that he was resurrected. And they were the first to tell Jesus' followers of his resurrection. And the women were the first to believe in the resurrection. And while he was being crucified, there were four women present and one apostle apparently who drifted back. They had all fled, but he apparently drifted back. And that presumably that was John. And before Jesus died, he instructed John to care for his mother. Clearly great sensitivity and appreciation for the women who were supporting him and followers of him. Now, a couple of theological points. First, metaphysical awareness. Mankind seems to have no problem concocting ideas about how God will or should conduct his affairs. Generally, these ideas lack metaphysical awareness, the ability to see from God's perspective. Notwithstanding Jesus's teaching about building his ecclesia, the apostle <clears throat> This apostles defaulted to a naturalistic view of the kingdom of God. The apostles didn't understand the failure of the Old Testament experiment and the need for divine potency in themselves, nor did they understand the multi-ethnic nature of the promise of God to bless all mankind. They could not see the meta-narrative, even though they personally knew the protagonist of the story, Jesus. In Acts 1, Jesus was preparing to ascend to be with the Father after many appearances over 40 days that were intended to validate his resurrection as a real event. You see, the linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, the Apostle Paul noted in 1 Corinthians 15, we are still in our sins. The resurrection is the key. And the resurrection also, the reality of the resurrection prepared his followers for the next phase of the meta narrative the building of the ecclesia based on divine potency. The apostles responded like most of us would as naturalists, people who only can see from a, with our eyes, with our natural eyes. We don't have spiritual eyes to really see what God's doing. The book of Acts recorded how God revealed these truths progressively to the apostles. In other words, he progressively revealed what he was doing and his perspective to them. So they progressively grew in their ability to see metaphysically, and therefore they progressively grew in their ability to understand reality from God's perspective. They progressively grew in their ability to draw the right conclusions. They progressively grew in their ability to make the right choices. This is what growth and maturity in Christ looks like, this progression, seeing reality, understand reality, drawing the right conclusions, making the right choices. This is the way you grow. This is called metaphysical awareness, growing, maturing metaphysical awareness. True Christians are engaged in this process of growth where they see increasingly more as God sees and live increasingly more as Christ lived. Now I want to talk a minute about the missional model of today and question whether or not it's a valid model. Acts 1.8 and Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 are generally regarded as the basis for modern missions. The seminal assumption of this initiative is that it is the responsibility of the ecclesia to evangelize the world. Accordingly, discipleship is largely equated to conversion. Conversion is validated by a profession of faith. At least that's how, what we presume today. 
This means when the pedestrian view of missions <clears throat> that, that we don't really think very robustly. We don't think like the early church did. So listen to what Alan Kreider, a church historian, wrote about how the early church viewed the Great Commission. The early Christian preachers did not appeal to the Great Commission. Let me read that again. They did not appeal to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to inspire their members to make disciples for all nations. They assumed that the apostles, that is Jesus 11 plus Paul, had done this in the church's earliest years and that it had been fulfilled in the church's global expansion. Now that's an amazing assumption. Kreider goes on and says this, says the church's primarily witness was a product not of what Christians said, but of how they lived. In other words, there was no strategy for world missions in the first 300 years after the early first apostles after the original apostles and Paul were all killed off, which would have been somewhere uh, before the end of the first century, from then on, there was no vision for world evangelism as we envision it today. The, the theory was that all ethnic groups had been, had been exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ and disciples had been made of all ethnic groups and now it was up to those disciples to live the reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory. <clears throat> so their profession of faith was not enough. They didn't baptize people based on a profession of faith. They wouldn't baptize you until they were convinced that you had been born again, that you'd been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you demonstrated that by how you live. They looked for transformation, transformation in your life not just in your words, in your life. Now, in addition to support Kreider's research of the early church documents, empirical data seems to support his thesis. Consider this, notwithstanding a massive effort by the Christian world over the past 200 years, the average growth rate of Christianity is half the rate of the Islamic world. In other words, there, the, the growth rate of Islam is double that of Christianity. But get this, the growth rate of secular humanism over the last 200 years is two orders of magnitude greater than the growth rate of Christianity. What's really growing in the world today is secularism, humanism, naturalism, atheism, agnosticism. Those are all isms that all are, they're basically ways of describing the same thing. People living independent of God. This is what's really growing. And this is happening at a time when we are spending more people, more time, more resources than ever on world evangelism, and we're seeing virtually no fruit. And we're seeing actually the opposite. The early church may have been correct in how to view missions. Discipleship is not simply a profession of faith. It is a process of transformation that takes years. The Holy Spirit will use transformed people to draw others to Jesus. Christians are called to live holy lives. To live accordingly requires a long-term commitment to holistically growing in Jesus. Those who are being sanctified by the power of God will asymptotically grow in their ability to live holy lives. This was viewed by the early church as the best way to bear witness of Jesus. So perhaps this should be our model today. Perhaps we should return to this 
and repent of all the resources we're putting into a flawed view of world missions. I want to just give you a word of application here. During the time between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus and his followers discussed the kingdom of God. That was the topic. Everything in the book of Acts has got to be connected to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is about the rule and reign of God expressed through his created agents, human beings. That is exactly what we're commanded to do in Genesis 1. We're to be his agents of rule. But our sin has impaired our ability. Jesus has dealt with our sin. And now we have the empowerment through the Holy Spirit to begin to rule as we were intended to in the first place. Jesus spoke of the progression toward the fulfillment of the divine meta narrative, which is the completion of this age that we're in, in which the full redemption of mankind will be realized. And it will be realized when he finally returns. We won't actually be totally used to do it. We will be used in part, but ultimately the final battle, the final victory will be Christ alone. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. The apostles spoke of progression in terms of returning to a failed reality. In other words, their view of how progression was going to happen under Jesus was very flawed in Acts chapter 1. Jesus did not was not influenced by their flawed view. He articulated a correct view, a biblical view, a metaphysically aware view. And so now we have the unfolding beginning in Acts 1 of how God is going to train his followers as ecclesia and how to think correctly about what his meta narrative is all about. So there's a parallel for us today. Humans fail to see progression from God's perspective. The apostles fail to see it, and so do others today. The meta narrative is a story of God's history, God's story of history that will culminate in the reestablishment of the uncontested rule of God over his creation. That's what ultimately will happen. There is an end to this story. The term prog progression is a popular term today. You hear it frequently in the, in the media, uh, various people, politicians like to refer to it, social leaders. Uh, it's very popular in the West and commonly understood today. Progression is used to describe uh, the, the the, basically the change of unwanted social norms. That is disconnecting unwanted social norms from theism in general and Christianity in particular. The similar axiom of progressivism today is atheism. Now that's not the way it's always been. So let's look at some history here. The uh, English word for atheism was not even coined until the 16th century because there was no need for it. There were almost no atheists prior to that time. And then by the uh, the 18th century, the 19th century rather, 300 years later, you have atheists still fairly small part of the population. Uh, the estimates are that in the turn of the 19 uh, turn of 1900, which would be the 18th century, excuse me, 19th century, which would be 1800, um, the number of ag atheists and agnostics in the world, the global population, was fewer than 0.04 percent. By 2025, it's estimated the number of atheists and agnostics will rise to more than 10% of the global population. Now, that's just a 225-year history from 1800 to 2025. And during this time, the, the Christian population grew from 25% of the global population to 34%. And that's a growth rate of 1227%. The global population grew at a growth rate of 
but the atheistic agnostic growth group growth rate grew at a staggering 248,610%. That's over two orders of magnitude faster than Christianity. This is explosive growth on the part of agnostic and atheism. It is not surprising with this explosive growth that we're going to see some changes. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, progressivism first arose as a social and economic uh, system to deal with problems associated with rapid industrialization. That is, there were problems because now we were undergoing these rapid changes in the culture that we had never seen before, and there were a lot of misuses and abuses happening. So progressivism rose as a way to try to re deal with this. But that, that was initially fairly, a fairly wholesome reason to be progressive. But that's all changed. In the latter half of the 20th century, progressivism has morphed. It is no longer what it used to be. It's now a social political movement that's rejected any unwanted societal norm connected to scripture. That's very important we recognize that. This is a way to reject God, to reject his norms, to reject Christ. That's now what progressivism has become. And so as a result, it's, it's being forced on us because of this wave of atheism, agnosticism that's sweeping the world. And this is, uh, can be framed as humanism as well. In fact, it is humanism. Humanists presume the autonomous right to make up their own societal rules, precisely what Adam and Eve sought in the garden. Naturalists, which are humanists or gonna be naturalists, preclude the existence of any reality other than physical reality. Scientist Carl Sagan projected this idea when he famously said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. All spiritual reality is rejected a priori, including the idea of a creator. Since God is presumptively precluded by progressivists, they lack metaphysical awareness. They have no metaphysical awareness and no interest in hearing about metaphysical awareness. They cannot see reality from God's perspective. This means they do not see the meta narrative and cannot measure progress as God does. They are very blind. Now, like the original apostles of Jesus, the modern day progressives with their lack of metaphysical awareness, they were disconnecting. They were disconnecting from reality. Today, we try to disconnect unwanted societal norms from scripture. That is unreality. Scripture is the best source of societal norms, but yet we are rapidly trying to disconnect every societal norm we can from scripture. The original apostles simply sought to restore a failed paradigm of the kingdom of God. That's, that was their metaphysical awareness. But today, it's all about total rebellion against God. But both the apostles and the the, um, the the people that today call themselves progressivists had the same problem. They could not see reality correctly. Now, God is very gracious. He's gracious to the apostles because he's correcting them in the book of Acts and through the history of the ecclesia. He's corrected their lack of metaphysical awareness and give them the ability to see from God's perspective. That's, a, that's grace. The progressivists today don't have that kind of grace on them. They continue in the rebellion against God. They continue in their unreality. Well, how will God respond to the modern day progressivists who live naturalistically in the illusion that they have the right to, to redefine unwanted societal norms? Most likely the divine response will be an illusion of success for a period of time and then judgment 
as was the case with the Tower of Babel. Since the fall of man, mankind has sought to live independent of God. Those who can see the true lessons of history know that humans functioning autonomously do not develop better norms for family, education, economics, law, and societal ethics. Societal ethics concocted by man, independent from God, will not be progressive, but regressive. That's the deception. What is called progressive is really regressive today. For centuries, most of the global society norms where I've been defined by scripture. We define the family, education, economics, law, and social ethics all from scripture. Now in the 21st century, the explosive growth of atheism, agnosticism, and therefore humanism and naturalism over the past 200 centuries, or excuse me, two centuries, has emboldened mankind into the illusion of progressivism. This is great deception. In time, this illusion will be revealed for what it really is. The unwise choices of atheism agnosticism will lead to bondage, chaos, and judgment. This is the bane of the illusion of modern progressivism.